Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read briefly from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage, which is Proverbs chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 19. There, I'm sorry, 18 through 31. I read the Proverbs 1. I was like, wait, that's the exact same thing as in Proverbs 1. Sorry. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. 18 through 31 from 1 Corinthians 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren... That not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world and to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. Who became for us wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written. He who glories let him glory in the Lord. Amen. Paul powerfully answers the question, what makes a great human being? What makes a great person? You know throughout history, right? Uh, Going through bookstore after bookstore, I don't don't know if this happens to you, but I seem to spend a ridiculous amount of time in bookstores normally, and it doubles in December. And uh, going through bookstore after bookstore, you realize there's just rows of biography. Why does biography dominate the book market? For one thing, they're easy to write. Just kidding. Um, For another thing, people love to read them. We love to read about great people who do great things. But the Apostle Paul here systematically dismantles all that the books in Barnes & Noble call great. They dismantled the biography section and says, you know, who's wise? Who's wealthy? Who's powerful? These aren't the great humans in the world. No, the great humans of the world are those whom he says 
have belief. Verse 21. Those who believe. The foolishness of God, the weakness of God, the poverty of God is superlative and superior to all other human experiences. No, if we trust God, faith in God, this is what makes a great person, a great human. With this in mind, turn over to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. We began our sermon series in Proverbs two weeks ago. In classic Noah Bailey style, I preached the introduction from verses uh, 1 through 9, went on vacation, left you hanging. Now we're back for sermon 2. Proverbs 1, verses 10 through 19. Proverbs 1, verses 10 through 19. Even as we saw in verses 1 through 9, Solomon introduced us to the beginning of wisdom. That is the fear of the Lord. Now, in verses 10 through 19, he introduces us to the absence of wisdom. What becomes of us if we do not fear the Lord? Proverbs chapter 1, verses 10 through 19. Here again, the word of the Lord. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly in their own line, for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Amen and amen. It is common for coaches to gather their team in the locker room before the big game and to give a speech. We even call it, right, the locker room speech. In which he tries to focus the mind of his athletes on the task at hand. He tries to stir up their passion and affection to go and play with enthusiasm. In like manner, parents of young children about to depart on a pleasant night out, might gather those children around and sort of focus their minds. Now remember, children, you need to honor your babysitter. Now remember, children, the rules that mommy and daddy have made are still in force even when we are absent. Now remember, children, I love you and I will come back. In like manner, on a very warm August night, about 80 degrees different than what you're feeling right now. I was in the basement of a church in Pennsylvania having a flower pinned on to my black tux jacket when my future father-in-law stepped into the room and pulled me aside. And he said to me, Noah, she's almost ready. In a few minutes, you will be married. And there's three things I want you to keep in mind. 
Beloved Solomon, like a good coach, like a good father, like a good father-in-law, pulls aside his son in Proverbs chapter 1 and says, Now listen, boy, there are some things you need to know about the world. Two things, in fact, that you need to know about life. First, sin leads to death. And second, Jesus leads to life. This is the truth for us. This is the gospel truth on which we must build our lives this week. Our sin leads to death. But Jesus leads to life. This is the truth we must believe and practice. And so Solomon trains his son in these few verses to practice this truth by loving and living like Jesus. To put it together, dear saints, your sin leads to death, but Jesus leads to life. So love and live like Jesus. Now let's think through this briefly this morning. Notice in verse 10, Solomon addresses his son about the enticing appeal of sin and his need to resist. My son, if sinners entice you, do not Consent. Literally in the Hebrew it says, be not willing, be unwilling. Don't have a heart for it. Don't be inclined to acquiesce. Don't be willing to do it. If sinners attempt to seduce you, that's our word, to entice you, to seduce you, to persuade you, to win you over. If sinners are appealing, because sinner, sin is frankly appealing, you should be unwilling You see, Solomon notices that very often the only line between you and sin is your will. Very often you will find yourself in a temptation where you cannot maneuver your way out. The only thing you can do is exercise willpower. I know that very often we in the evangelical tradition want to focus on the importance of sanctifying our lives so thoroughly that we don't get tempted by stuff. So we don't watch, we don't listen, we don't taste, we don't touch, and we, and we isolate our lives from all the avenues of sin. There's a lot of wisdom in that. It's not a bad thing to do under most circumstances. But Solomon recognizes that the most insidious sin and the most difficult sin to deal with is not the sin that you're going to find in what you watch, what you listen to, what you taste, and what you do. It's the sin that starts inside of you. It's the sin you do because you long to do it. You love to do it. So if I have a sin that starts inside of me, how do I obey my father Solomon and give up a willing heart? Solomon has learned from his father David in Psalm 51, create in me a new heart. Solomon has learned from his father David in Psalm 51, give to me a right spirit within me. We know from Jeremiah that the heart of a human is deceitfully wicked. None can know it. We know from Jeremiah that the nature of a human is to sin and we cannot change it. But God can. That permanent imperfection that is ever lurking within me, making sin enticing, making sin seductive, is only overcome by union with Christ. 
is only overcome by a greater love. To use the phrase of a brilliant preacher from the 19th century, I got his little book here, right? Two copies of it if you guys want it. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, Thomas Chalmers. He's Scottish, but they changed the accent so you can understand it. He's a great Scottish preacher who pointed out ultimately what rids you of your natural love for sin is a greater love. The love of God in Christ. My friends, if you would be unwilling to sin, you must discover the purifying love of God in Christ. If you wish sin to be something that is not seductive, you must become enthralled with the love of God in Christ. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who wins our hearts to that pure love that keeps us unwilling to sin. Now, Solomon then very wisely expands on that point. And he teases out two ideas that illustrate for us how enticing sin can be. And and in other words, Solomon shows us two particular ways in which sin is particularly seductive to us. First, it's power. In verses 10 and 11, the sinners gather around Solomon's son and they begin to say, come with us. Join our fellowship. Be united to us in a companionship and in a company. Let us lie in wait. Let us lurk secretly. Let us swallow alive. Let us swallow whole. In these four verbs, we learn that it is a companionship of power. It's basically the fellowship of the ring in reverse. This is a friendship not on a mission to destroy the evil in the world. This is a fellowship that is determined to acquire all the rings of power possible. This is Sauron's fellowship. They want to have the dominion of the grave. Let us swallow others like we are death itself. Death is the universal condition of all humans. This is a fellowship, a friendship that is looking for universal power. They don't want control of a few. They want control of the whole of humanity. Let us dominate all life. As Sauron himself aimed to do. This, my friends, is an appealing and enticing prospect. It doesn't sound like it, does it? Because those of us who watched Peter Jackson's movies know that the Tower of Baradur falls. But in the wisdom of the world, we are easily seduced in our hearts to a longing for power. I want the power to earn more money. I want the power to make that red light green. I want the power to make my kids eat their dinner. I want power. And every human heart looks at every struggle in life and says, I wish I had the power to change this. To dominate this. To get my way and to exercise my will. This is what this companionship is. This is what this fellowship exists to do, to dominate and to control. 
And we all long for this. It is seductive. It is enticing. Let me give you one little sinister illustration. Have you ever gotten angry? Have you ever gotten angry at an inanimate object? You want power over that thing that will not obey you. You want dominance. You want your will to be fulfilled and carried out. You want to be like God, controlling life and death. It is enticing. And the only answer is to embrace a life of powerlessness. Such as we see in the life of Jesus Christ. Who according to Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, that phrase form means that he was in that place and honor of God. Though he was worshipped as God, though he was God, glorified in all heaven, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Though he had all power, And though his will was obeyed instantaneously, he did not consider that something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. And took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus came into the world to be powerless. Jesus came into the world to destroy death. By dying. He destroyed the grip of the grave. By lying in its grasp. Beloved. This is the answer. To this heart within you. That is craving power. That is craving control. Be like Christ. Behold his humiliation. Study well. His powerless love. And sacrifice and service to others. Love as he loved. Live as he lived. My son, do not consent with sinners. When they say, let us be powerful. Secondly, they say, let us be prosperous. In verses 13 and 14, they say to the son of Solomon, let us swallow them alive like Sheol. And let us go be like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Notice this line. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. Again, like in verse 11, it's an invitation to a fellowship. Let us be united in this purpose. Let us be friends and let us have a companionship. We have a longing to belong. We have a deep desire within us to be part of a bond of affection and love, to be part of a family. And this is what they offer the son of Solomon. But it is one based on the mission of gaining power and possession. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We will accumulate great wealth. We will accumulate great wonders. We will fill our houses with the spoil. They will add continually and acquire constantly. This too is very enticing to us as humans. This too is something that appeals to us constantly. And I know that 
Here in the West, we always have that comparison where we are insanely rich and the rest of the world is not. I'm also also marveling among our own experiences, among wealthy Westerners. How many times I have heard those who work diligently say, I only get so many days off, meaning and still get paid for them. You see, I can't imagine a world where I take time off and be unpaid. I can't imagine a world where I'm not in a perpetual position of acquiring wealth. If 24 hours go by and I have not added to my net worth, something has gone wrong. This is the mind of the Western human. I must grow continually my power and my possession. Again, the text is very timely, is it not? We have an America who just pushed an enormous amount of its economy into the black from the red because we had to acquire a very large amount of possessions. Many houses in America that were already bursting at the seams with possessions just got a little fuller. We have this appetite to acquire. We have this ambition to acquire. We collect and we gather and we constantly put together and we live in this humanity and the only answer for this greedy heart is a new one. And a heart like Christ who came into the world And did not consent. And he was unwilling to live like this. He said, you know, foxes have holes in the ground. And birds have nests in the trees. And I have nothing. No house. No pillow. When they hung him on the cross, he had a piece of cloth that they rolled dice for. All his worldly goods distributed in one throw of the die. He taught his disciples, if you have two robes, give away one. If you have two staffs, give away the second. If you're asked, go a mile, go two. He taught his disciples to give. It was not a heart of acquisition. It was a heart of distribution. It was not a longing to amass. It was a longing to give. This is what Solomon says to his son. You live in a world where your humanity, your human nature cries out. Give me power. Give me prosperity. Let me get. Let me gain. My son, do not consent. Be unwilling to be a human when this is what a human is. Be unwilling to be the way you were made. Do not consent to that natural fallen order. Instead, put on Christ. Instead, become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Living to serve others. Living to give to others. Living to serve life, not death. Doling out, not the dead, but the life. Solomon then returns to his refrain in verse 15. My son. Do you see how in verse 10, he begins his line of logic with the line, my son. In verse 15, he uses the vocative again, my son. And he repeats a very similar idea. 
If sinners entice you, do not consent. That's verse 10. Verse 15, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. But this time, Solomon has shifted the metaphor. In verse 10, he has opened up the door for us to understand our place in a fallen humanity. Where we, like everyone else, have a natural propensity to acquire and amass wealth and power. And he says, do not consent to this. This time, he says, do not walk with them. Do not adopt their lifestyle. Do not adopt their practices. In this way, he speaks of the way. He speaks of the path. And in verse 16, he speaks of their feet, which run and make haste. These three pieces of his parable point us back to the Hebrew mindset of lifestyle, of habits. Moses speaks, walk in the way. David says, I will run in your path when you enlarge my heart. This idea of walking and of running in the Hebrew mind is the idea of how one lives life. What are the normal routines in your life? What are the rhythms of your life? What are the habits of your heart? You see, it's not enough, says Solomon, that his son should have a heart so full of the love of Christ that it doesn't come out. In other words, Solomon in verses 15 and 16 says, My son, take that heart of love that Christ has given you and cultivate a lifestyle to match. Cultivate habits and rituals by which that loving heart spills out into the world so that others may experience it. Stay off that selfish path. Stay off that selfish road. And do not run with the wicked. No, walk differently. Don't resemble them. In other words, to quote the great British philosopher, walk this way. No one knows that one? Okay. He says, we are to walk in a manner that is similar to Christ. To have a habit that resembles Jesus. Let our feet move as his moved. Not to evil, not to the shedding of blood, not to the hurting of others. Notice in verse 16 that there is a busyness about those who walk this road. Those who travel this path. They are in a hurry and they are hasty. And it causes hurt to others. Have you ever noticed things don't go well when you're in a hurry? I have noticed this because I am often in a hurry and I am often getting hurt. I made the observation yesterday as I was very helpfully cutting things, including my own finger, that whenever I cut things, I cut my own finger. There's a, a magnetism between my skin and the blade of a knife. I, I, don't, I don't quite understand it. But my wife can cut things endlessly and never herself. I can cut one apple and myself. There is this natural proclivity to move toward harm within the human heart. But not in the heart of Christ. He came into the world and walked a different road. A road that didn't lead to the shedding of others' blood. But a road that led to the shedding of His blood. You see, the path that Jesus walks and says to us, Come, walk this path with me, is the path of crucifixion.
It is the path by which he says to us, deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow me. What is that earthly habit that we are to cultivate when we have the love of Christ in our hearts? The first habit is cruciformity. That we lay down our ambitions and take up Christ. That we crucify ourselves and our desires as he did. We seek not to harm others, but we willingly accept the hurt that it takes to love others. We willingly embrace that self-denial that says, I will bear the hurt so that you can go harm-free. I will bear the burden of this relationship. I will bear the weight of loving you. This is the path Jesus walked. This is the road he calls us to run upon. He says, do not walk the road that leads to the harm of others. Walk the road that leads to you carrying a cross. This is the first habit. If the love of Christ is deep within our hearts, then we do not crave power anymore. If the love of Christ is deep within our hearts, then we do not crave possessions anymore. Let us instead crave the cross of Christ. I long to wear the cross of Christ, says Solomon and his son, that I should bear the burdens of one another and fulfill the law of love. But the second habit is found in verses 17 and 18. That not only we should walk the road of crucifixion, willingly wearing the cross of Christ, but we should also see how it is vain to spread a net in sight of any bird. I love this metaphor. I can totally see myself doing this. This man, in all of his youthful folly, seizes a net. And he stretches it out. And he runs up to a flock of birds like they're going to leap into his net. In vain does he spread his net in the sight of birds. He he learns that chasing birds who can fly is not a winning proposition. So he comes up with a better idea. He gets underneath the roosting birds up in the trees and he takes his net and he spreads it out and he throws it up into the branches. And learns that that too does not catch birds. In vain does he spread his net in the sight of any bird. In fact, when he casts his net through the air, all he finds is is himself entrapped. According to verse 18, they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. You see, my friends... The the pursuit of power does not produce power. It produces death. The pursuit, pursuit of prosperity does not produce wealth. It produces death. Those who seek to add to themselves only destroys themselves. Again, in the words of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8... He who would seek his own life will lose it. And he who gives up his life willingly shall find it in Christ. This is wisdom, says Solomon to his son. If you go out into the world and you find a humanity devoted to self-seeking, do not consent. 
Do not be willing to seek self. For self-seeking is the first step to self-destruction. For selfishness gives birth to death. For that which we seek to acquire and amass for ourselves shall become instruments of destruction within us. That if we allow our hearts free reign, sinful as they are, they shall sin abundantly and thus die deeply and permanently. We lurk for our own lives. We lie in wait for our own blood. But by contrast, we see Jesus. Unlike any other bird ever seen in the history of the world. Who, in the Garden of Gethsemane, found his captors lying a net in plain sight. And he did not fly away. And he watched as they cast the net over his head. As they lay in wait for his blood and his life. Lurking secretly in the dark of night. And he said to them in the garden. I have taught you openly in the temple and you said nothing. I have healed openly in your streets and you did nothing. And now you come with clubs and torches in the night as after a robber. You see, Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. Laying down his life willingly. Solomon says, my son, this is wisdom. Do not pursue power. Do not pursue prosperity. Do not pursue self. If, if I can pick on Thomas Jefferson as I like to do from time and time again. Do not pursue happiness. Do not pursue self and all of its gratification. No, that's not wisdom, that's foolishness. For the one that seeks the self destroys the self. Instead, there must be another way, a better way. Verse 19, Solomon concludes. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Solomon very cleverly starts his second sentence with the pronoun it. Leaving us going, what's the it? Is it the gain that takes away the life of its owners? Those who gain lose their life. Is it the greed for gain that that those who own a greed for gain will lose their life? Is it the way of everyone who is greedy for gain that that way of living takes away life? The answer is, as he has proven throughout these passages, yes. Yes, the heart that is marked by greed is a self-destroying heart. The way of life that is marked by greed is a self-destroying way of life. And all that acquisition and all that things that we have amassed and gained in life will be but a great big tombstone on us, bearing us down and crushing us. This all-consuming desire we have to gratify ourselves is a self-destroying gratification. It takes away the life of its owners. Notice again, though, by contrast, there is one human who is different. He came into the world, and his life was not taken away. 
It was given freely. His life was not taken by his greed. His life was not taken by his gain. He was born in poverty and obscurity. He was born powerless, an infant in a manger. He was born without the wealth and power of the world. Yet, he gave his life willingly. That he might become the source of eternal life to all others. In other words, as Solomon here teaches us, sin leads to death and Jesus leads to life. And so we must love and live like Jesus. Out of curiosity though, this has been sort of sitting beneath the surface in this whole sermon. How did Jesus know this? How did Jesus get this so right? And I I know know the easy answer, right? I'll do the easy answer for you. He was God. You know, he knew stuff. In fact, he's God. He's omniscient. But that's not what the New Testament actually teaches us. Luke chapter 2 says that he grew in wisdom. Hebrews chapter 5 says that he learned obedience from the things he suffered. How did Jesus walk in this world so wisely, not seeking wealth, not seeking power, not seeking self, but lovingly giving himself a ransom for many? Beloved, he read Proverbs chapter 1. He was a student of Solomon. In fact, we might say it this way. He is the son to whom Solomon is writing. My son, Jesus, here's how you should live when you get here. Here's what your life will be like. Beloved, Jesus fulfills this text. He is the son of Solomon who has completely kept every part of this command sinlessly and perfectly. And he turns to you today and he says, by faith, My life is yours. By faith, my righteousness is yours. By faith, come walk with me, and I will teach you to be wise, as we see in the pages of Solomon. Beloved, this is not only an invitation to live like Jesus. It is an invitation to marvel at the glory of Jesus. That we should want to be like Jesus. Even as your sin leads to death, So Jesus leads to life. Love and live like Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful passage. For the treasures of Jesus that are so abundant to us in it. Thank you for the wisdom of Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus. We pray, O God, that you would forgive us this day that we have been so self-seeking in all our ways. And we thank you for our Jesus, who is so self-sacrificial in all his ways. We pray that today we would love him as we have come to know him. And we pray now, Father, that you would bless us through the remainder of this day and throughout this week. That we would be more like him and more in love with him. For this we ask in his name. Amen.